This is the Andres Segovia Show. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Andres Segovia Show. Today, I have a returning guest. She is the author of Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, Sarah Adams. Sarah Adams, welcome back to the Andres Segovia Show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, uh, when the Boone came on, uh, we talked about the uh, the fixes and the releases of the of the book. Um, but since then, there's been a major update that you dropped on Instagram. So for those who may not know, um, Benghazi Know Thy Enemy is basically an investigative case file that you've been putting together along with Boone on the uh, the ones that attacked the uh, both uh, the villa or the makeshift consulate for the ambassador uh, and the annex and a lot of these are these guys are still at large, right? Correct. And oh, the the latest updates you can let everybody know. That to me, this is a big one. Um, the the latest update that you put on Instagram. Can you share it with my audience? Sure. We actually have three updates we've been dro- we're dropping. You know, in the next couple of weeks. The first one is um that we identified the the like the cell name of the mortar team. So that's the team that took the mortar strikes at the CIA annex and killed um, Ronan Bubb, so the two CIA officers. And that's a group called the Hassan al-Jabbar group. The interesting thing, though, is it's not a group in its own. That's just the name of the cell. The cell was in Rafala al-Sahati, which if you read our book, you know that's actually the 17 February Martyrs Brigade. So again, that's the organization the U.S. government paid to protect the U.S. consulate. And then our other two updates, we're going to hopefully once I get them in, I'm trying to put them in the baseball form, card form, because that's what people are used mm-hmm. to seeing them. So once I get that put together, but we also have two more terrorists that we're releasing that we've identified um, in recent months. This is a, it's an emotional thing uh, for, for those of you that have gone through it, you're in a way still living it because you're still involved in this, in this case, Um it, in reading your book, because when we first spoke on the show back, uh, I think it was October, twenty twenty two, I was still waiting for my book, so I didn't get <laughs> to read it. So until I got the book, uh, it, just reading uh, the intro to hear also your perspective, because you were uh, in Benghazi that morning, and just in twenty four hours, it's it's like everything had changed. Now, I I can't imagine what what that's like. So in uh, that to me is something. It's a perspective that's from a lot that we get. We don't hear from those that uh, the GRS were tasked to protect. We, we uh, in a way, have seen it from the State Department and the guys that were there uh, and all that went down. And we hear from the GRS because uh, some of the guys broke cover and tried to set the record straight when everything was, you know, talked about. But we never actually heard from someone that was in. Oh, the, a part of the CIA working cases there. And I think you're the first I ever heard from. So uh, I think that's a very important perspective for people to get. Um, I found it very emotional. I had to put the book down too, because I can only imagine what that was like. But uh, it's you're, 10 year, plus years later, here you are still investigating this. Uh, and when that nugget of information dropped, it was like, well, yeah, we knew, but now we know. You know it's like, these are the guys. Like, uh, and there's a theme to this that we'll touch on a little later on some of the conversations about uh, paying the enemy to protect our interests. <laughs> it's like it's a recurring theme. But how, uh, for those that might be curious about this, because you're still investigating despite technically being retired from the CIA, uh, you're using open source uh, avenues to collect this information, right? 
yeah, to make sure we could put it out, we didn't go back to any of like our CIA contacts we had in Libya. So we had to make all new relationships, find all new avenues so we could keep it open source. So like we didn't reach out to like the intelligence service in Libya, for example, right? Because then mm-hmm. that could get a little um, dicey and we might not have had been able to put it out. So yeah, we created our own networks um, and we collect all of our own info. We also self-fund it, right? So now that we know who the mortar team is, which has been a top priority of us from CIA, as you can imagine, um, now that's going to be the next big part of our investigation. The problem is, as you can imagine, to identify 10 guys is going to cost a lot of money, a lot of time. Um, so that's kind of now, you know, starting to save up to fund that portion, portion of the investigation. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning uh, a little more along the way here Uh because audience members, I want you all to understand, we're not just talking about Benghazi. We're not, we're not just talking about a book here. Um, we're talking about an active investigation. And as you said, uh, funding is needed. And maybe if you have anything later uh, to plug in, by all means, please do so. Uh, where people, if they want to uh, be a part of this to support, they can. Uh, because technically, the FBI is supposed to be on this. Yeah, the FBI was given the Benghazi case basically in the middle of the night of the attacks. So as of September 12, 2012, they were the lead on this investigation. Compared to them, you've covered way more ground than they have. And as uh, the FBI is not looking good in the news right now. So it's just a lot of botched investigations on there. And even to stop some of these uh, uh, mass shootings, um, they've had people on the wings. Oh, we've been observing them for a year. Okay, you did nothing about it. Then they shot up uh, a bunch of kids. So how can we trust them to take care of something this big? And 10 years later, nothing has truly turned up. Um, and the guy that they pinned it on was technically not not a mastermind, but they were making him the fall guy. Yeah, they put a fake ma- mastermind in prison in the United States to basically lie and say, hey, we finished the Benghazi investigation. We got the main guy. Everyone move on. And he wasn't even an attacker. He showed up late. He waited till Al-Qaeda left and he went into the compound. You know, the other thing is when we were doing an investigation and we started asking about these terrorists, the feedback we kept getting is like, oh, the U.S. government was never asking for this. Oh, like, why did your government come after these guys? Um, so the problem is a lot of people in Libya think our government's funding these terrorists. And it's a huge problem, right, to get over. It's a huge hurdle for us to be like, hey, we're not our government. They failed. We're trying to do the right thing. But it is a hard thing to convince a Libyan that, you know, we're being sincere in trying to find the real attackers and not protecting mm. them in some way. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, you're you're finding these individuals. Well, what then? Is it your network that's supposed to like deal with the arrest or whatever? The United States government's meant to take action on this, hopefully. Uh, what's the, uh, how's that, how's that next phase? Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of faith in our government doing something, but at the end of the day, now that we put their names out there, they're forced to at least do a little bit of something, right? Because if we listed these guys as terrorists and they don't at least watch list them and one flies in the United States and doesn't attack, I mean, they kind of egg on their face. Mm-hmm. So we do think it forces their hand a little bit, but we're more interested in other countries who come across these terrorists doing something, maybe be the Egyptians, the Algerians, the French, you know, the Turkish government, et cetera. Because what we tried to do in the book, we tried to focus on all the other attacks they're involved in, and especially if they became ISIS, 
because a lot of countries are more willing to go after yeah. ISIS. So if they became ISIS, we, we, we make it very clear. And that's a good chance they can get on a, a most wanted list in another country just for being ISIS. Nothing to do with our attacks. Uh, this is quite literally um, the great case of building awareness, uh, so to speak. Because, hey, everybody, be on alert. These uh, The enemy literally is still out there. Um, and, wow, uh, I guess uh, I, I, should, I should ask you this because we didn't, uh, we didn't get a chance to flesh it out the first time we spoke. Uh, you're still investigating. Uh, can you provide your professional background, um, uh, like what, what you did and, well, not how you went about it, but the point is what you did uh, during your time with the CIA? Yeah, the CIA, I was what was called a targeting officer. So a targeter basically um, found a target to capture, detain, or maybe recruit. You know, it was just finding a person of interest to the U.S. government. Could be a good guy, could be a bad guy, could be someone with unique info, if that makes sense. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it went across the whole gambit. So we were just identifying those people that then the CIA could action in some way or could approach in some way. So that was my job. And obviously in Libya, I was the counterterrorism targeter. So that I was the only one in country for most of 2012. Oh, wow. Because uh, when we first talked, uh, the, the two, uh, I guess, uh, um, pop culture references that I had with respect <laughs> to what you did was when it came to TV, it was going to be Carrie Matheson's um, Homeland uh, character or it would have been... Uh, Maya from Zero Dark Thirty uh, in the raid to get Bin Laden, and you were more of the Maya than you were the Carrie Matheson, as you said. And uh, I always found that interesting because you had to be out and about in the way uh, Zero Dark Thirty, for example, portrayed it. And maybe you can weigh in as to how real this was, um, having to be in hostile territory. Um, it's it seemed like she was on some fortified buildings all the time, even if it's just a <laughs> residence, uh, to just get out in bulletproof cars and all this, just to get about town. Um, she was alone in the car sometimes. Is is that generally the case? Like, hey, your life is in your hands. Go have dinner or go get lunch, whatever. Yeah, when we lived in that country, we lived in town. So you drove to and from work, you drove to get groceries, etc. Um, alone. So, yeah, and we lived in the houses alone. So we had large properties that we stayed alone in. Yeah, because th- there's that moment in, in Zero Dark Thirty that always stood out to me um, where Maya is, is, I think she was backing out of the residence uh, and there was an ambush waiting for her as she was pulling out. So she had to rush back into the house and the, I think the gates had to close behind her. It's like, well, they know who she is. Well, yeah, she's a white woman among a bunch of Middle Easterns. It's like, well, that was the one piece that wasn't factual. It's not that it wasn't factual. Okay. They took an attack on like a Peshawar consulate officer and then they molded it into the movie and made it on her. So it was actually against mm-hmm. the gentleman who worked for the State Department in Peshawar. So the incident mm-hmm. happened. It just wasn't her. But it probably is one of the only instances in the movie that they took two situations and melded them together. For pretty much everything, it was Maya. And you don't actually see it in the movie. Maya got a lot of very important targets who were senior leaders, even the leader of other terrorist groups well before Bin Laden. So it wasn't in the movie, but 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 her success rate um, was stellar. She probably is the best targeter that will ever come out of the CIA because she just took wow. out that many senior leaders. So you don't really see that in the movie. But yeah, she was the badass of badasses. <laughs> 
that is actually really great to know. It, there's a lot of wokeness or intersectionalism that's affected our media. So uh, there's some people that I know that when they've watched Zero Dark Thirty, even sometimes I found my eyes, myself, my eyes rolling. It's like, well, I don't know. How, how real is this portrayal of the, of this Maya and this and that? Uh, so when I heard um, that uh, uh, from you for the first time, I'm like, oh, I have to ask her a little. Because I, I poke and prod and to hear it from you as a validation. That's great because the, the film in itself, if it's taken just for what it is, in this case, Zero Dark Thirty, um, it, it looks like someone very young given maybe more than she can chew and having to take down the biggest case that all of us wanted um, uh, justice for, for 9-11. So like a little outburst that almost seems cinematic uh, because it's it's Hollywood. Sometimes like, oh, that's just all for a dramatic effect. But you kind of putting in some context to this and saying, no, she she got more than just one um, is, and, and of course, tracking down the, the big one. Uh, I think that's really awesome. That's actually really good to know because it, it, it'll change the way um, I see that film because I don't have to look at it from the from these lenses of just judging the film because this is what the creators wanted to do uh, versus uh, she did a lot more than what's shown here, which tends to be the case. But yeah, I'm glad you gave that insight there. That's cool. Huh. And she wasn't super young like because I'm 44 and she was definitely in the agency like five or six or seven or eight years before me. So um, maybe the actress looked a little young, but but she wasn't like some spring chicken who like just got lucky on Bin Laden. Like she put her time in. And I mean, she actually had basically like a, um, one of those memories where you remember everything. So she could be like, oh yeah, I talked to this guy in 2006 and he said X. And then you'd go look at the report in 2006 and be exactly what he said. So yeah, wow. she, she was pretty sharp. Yeah. That's okay. That's awesome. The wife's gonna want to watch it again. So, like, hey, look, that's actually real. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I might have mentioned this before. Uh, my my wife is very into watching uh, military themed films, uh, particularly modern warfare stuff. Um, she likes the heroism of it, not the actual bloody, gory, any details of like that. She's, she can't stand that stuff. But um, it's just uh, what puts you, uh, what puts an individual in that position, and how they respond. I think is what. Um, it's it, she she rather see uh, and 13 hours is one of those where it's just like wow this uh, Michael Bay toned it down it's like you don't hear that every day about a Michael Bay film um, but that that was uh, something's like hey I read the book and hear from the guys the movie was less dramatic and that's just like what um, but anyway I could get talking about oh wait uh, I got a great culture. recommendation for your wife though so do you okay. guys have showtime uh, which show in particular? So on Friday, Ghost of Beirut came out. I think it's going to be like four episodes. It was really good. It was basically about Hezbollah's main operational planner. And so so it, it was had episode one on Friday. It was excellent. Oh, okay. Ghost of Beirut. Yeah, I've seen... Okay. Uh, uh, what is, wait, that's not Michael uh, Keaton, is it, in that one? I, I don't want to mistake it with the other one that he was in. Yeah, I'm not sure um, who's all in there. Um actor wise but it was excellent well i'll check it anyway i did see a poster about it and uh, i didn't know it was a mini series that's good i thought it was a, like a cable tv film you know those are either hit or misses <laughs> uh, but if it's if it's a mini series great because she enjoyed spy game uh, with robert redford and brad pitt <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah it's i'm a, it, does this take place in the 80s when i hear yeah. Beirut, i think the 80s yeah 
Yeah, okay. it starts be a little before the Marine Barrack bombing. So the first episode okay. is the, the time before that, but it'll go through that time period. Oh, great. Then good. Yeah, we're overdue for something uh, to check out. Uh, but I might wait out until the four episodes are played out if it's just four and ask you, is it worth the watch? Because <laughs> uh, time is limited. <laughs> hey, episode one makes it all worth the watch. Trust me. It was that well, good. That Okay, that sounds really good. Um, yeah. Okay. I had a question for you, and I feel like I I feel like I'm gonna be jumping subjects here, but <laughs> then I'll let me let me because I could geek out with you um, a lot, especially when you name drop some producers and showrunners. Like, oh yeah, so you're a Game of Thrones fan too. Um, but uh, uh, with with respects to to Homeland, I gotta ask you, um, did you enjoy that series? Like, yeah, I love Homeland. I loved every season except that weird one where like the guy was kind of like the talking head. But all the rest of the, season, the seasons were really good. I probably watched Homeland from beginning to end five times. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, I think you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it was one of the... Uh, I love the showrunners from when they did work on 24. I've been, I, 24 was my favorite show. Technically still is, but it's from a different era now. Um, but 24 was just... It came out at the right... I don't, well, that sounds wrong to say right time, but the, it's just it's an interesting uh, release there in that because the showrunners, um, John Kasser and Howard Gordon, I think his name is because yeah, he's the one that did Homeland. Um, the, the way they, they frame things out, it's, it always shocked me how they did the series. They wrote it out. And then life imitated art like, wait, you guys are ahead of the game here. So then the Homeland when it was as the episodes were debuting, it's like, wasn't this just in the news? It's like, it's mimicking real life. It, it was, it, they try to ground it so much. Uh, that might've been um, some issues that people had with it. It's like, oh, I jumped the shark. Hey, I enjoy the show. Homeland's awesome. Um, but 24 was was uh, the show that, that I started with and uh, watched through and through. And it always shocked me how these guys were on it before it happened. Um, my wife, she's the one that convinced me to watch Homeland. I didn't. I'm like, not yet, honey. I need a, I need a show to finish. Um, but she's like, why do you not want to see it? It's like, because I'm going to love it. Because <laughs> I know what these guys do. And um, I, I think it's a powerhouse of a, of, of a show created. But how... Uh, how real uh, would the uh, case office be? Going rogue, people have issues with that kind of storylines. But uh, the way things were portrayed, how uh, Carrie Matheson's character, bipolar and all these other things, but um, tracking targets or or distrust of people. Uh, but the way she um, she technically conducted herself, is that the makings of of a case agent? Yeah, I mean, you know, she, she was a little hun out there. There, there, at times you do need to go rogue, but you're not going to go rogue and talk to like the Russian intel officer and not tell anybody about <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Or like even, the, um, you know, Quinn's like assassination team. You wouldn't have an assassination team off on the side that didn't get approvals. You know, like it, it, that's not how the CIA works. So some of that stuff was a little out there. But like if you watch the second Taliban season, so it was like I don't know if it was the last season, the one before the end of the show. If you go back and watch it now, it's amazing. It basically is exactly what happened in 2021. Um, mm. So, so yeah, they were like on point um, with that season. It's really interesting to rewatch. I rewatched it a year ago and I was like, yes. damn. 
that that was the one where they were doing the Afghanistan withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I'm not talk. I, I tell my wife's like, is, is this really happening? It's like, mm-hmm. yes. You're right. That was the second to last season. Yeah. Um, I actually recently watched the the Covenant. Um, I think you were talking about it on, on like. Have you yeah, seen? Yeah, I haven't gone to it yet. It's on my list. I just haven't got over to the movies yet. But yeah, I, I nudged my wife and told her like, "This is the director uh, of Sherlock Holmes. He's <laughs> super stylized, and he didn't do that for for the Covenant because this kind of ties into to what you're doing uh, too. Because you haven't just been doing investigations, but you've also been looking after the interest of the allies that you technically had a have this covenant or this promise to to them it's like thank you for your help we're going to get to the to the united states and it didn't happen we abandoned our allies overseas is that a, a true uh, offering uh, to these individuals yeah well it's really interesting you know it depends on the time frame right um recent years maybe not um, you know, the one part I find really interesting, this isn't the people I work. I don't talk about where the people I work worked because one's still in Afghanistan. Some of the families are still in. So until I get them all out, I'm not going to disclose, um, you know, what, what they did. But um, but you will be very interested. Um, but anyway, sure. one of the one of the groupings of people I do find very interesting outside of my work is um, I don't know if you've heard of the organization organization called Badger Six. It was basically a call sign. Yeah, it was basically a call sign from our Team Alpha day. So Team Alpha was basically one of the original CIA teams who went in into Afghanistan, and that's unfortunately where we lost our first CIA officer, Mike Span. Um, his his widow runs this organization, and its goal is to get those original Afghan assets, or at least their families, if, if they've been killed since. Um, out of Afghanistan. So these are the original ones we went in and said, hey, trust us. We're going to mm-hmm. get this right. And they're the ones who really put their neck out and, and risked everything, right, when we went in right after the 9-11 attacks. So they're the ones that I'm super passionate about. Um, and, and she hasn't had, unfortunately, a lot of success or a lot of support from the U.S. government to get them out. So, so that is a cause very important to the CIA community is to get our original CIA assets out. There, there's a lot chatter and um, discontent happening right now with uh, um, a lot louder uh, with our, our three-letter agencies uh, that are supposed to be taking care of a lot of this and how instead of, if, if they stop using their resources to target uh, law-abiding citizens in the United States, that they can probably keep their end of the bargain and um, look after not just our interests, but also our allies that they made these promises to. And in some cases, if these were very early on, we're talking about 20 years having to live in hiding. <clears throat> I'll just say it this way. Folks, watch The Covenant. I'm not a Jake Gyllenhaal fan. Not saying that he's not a good actor. I'm just saying I I, I, I personally can't stand him. Um, but uh, definitely watch The Covenant to at least get some context of what Sarah and I were just talking about with respects to allies that put themselves out there. Uh helping us find the bad guys and what did we hold up our end of the bargain? And uh, yeah, it's the, the whole fall of Saigon's gen- it's our generation's moment. What, what happened in, in Kabul, but um, yeah. Anyway. And the covenant, the covenant actually money from the movie goes to help one of the groups um, trying to rescue oh. Afghans. It's, it helps no one left behind. That group um, focuses on special immigrant visa holder Afghans, so it's another important group, obviously. Um, 
to, to the Americans who serve there. Unfortunately, our CIA assets don't exactly fall into that category, as you can imagine. Mm. The CIA doesn't hand over a year of paperwork to show their service oh, yeah. to the government because it was all classified. But there are a lot of very important people in that grouping. No one left behind is working. So any help the organization can get, you know, helps all, everybody. Wow. Okay. That I didn't know. Um, I feel better about my purchase because uh, it was an <laughs> in-home rental kind of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, that, that That's really good to know. I didn't see it in the end credits. The end credits just talks about um, how many uh, like estimated uh, allies we had. Of, yeah. I think one of the things people don't focus on, though, is, you know, I, I mostly focused on rescuing Americans at first. And we left 8,000 Americans behind and 14,000 green card holders. So people like oh. get lost in this, right? They're like, well, we're, they're Afghan allies. It's like, no, we, we, there's still Americans there. Um, and that that can get a little frustrating to get people to wrap their mind around it. Um, some of the first families I helped, um, one was like two women and their six kids. And they went home to Afghanistan during the kids' summer break to see their grandparents. And then, of course, being mm -hmm. women and children, they couldn't get anywhere near the airport because it was such a nightmare. They tried. It just was too dangerous. And so they got stuck there as Americans because they went home for a, a summer break. So a lot of people are like, oh, these people don't live here. It's like every American I rescued, their home is in the United States. They flew in, mm. they went home. Um, and so it's just getting people to understand that people get so detached sometimes from what's really happening in the world. It absolutely does. And I guess to, we can dwell on on, the, on this subject a, a little bit more because uh, I did have it on my notes to talk about Afghanistan. It kind of feeds into whole um, the global war on terror uh, and discussions of how Americans have soured on it um, because they don't they don't feel there's uh, an actual threat or whatever. It's all you know just a way to take our civil liberties away to give it up because of the Patriot Act, etc. But um, before before diving more into that, just to get an idea. What inspired you to be in the CIA? You know, I honestly, my graduate thesis in college was on Kashmir, and I couldn't think of anywhere else I would apply for a job with a focus on Kashmir, <laughs> right? Like my grad degree is like, honestly, most of the classes I did Kashmir stuff is like, oh my gosh, I'm a Kashmir expert, like super helpful for like 99% of the jobs. So yeah, I, I applied to CIA and luckily it was a time they were building up the Pakistan Afghanistan department. So I had one mm. interview and it was less than five minutes and the woman was like, oh yeah, we love that you work out here. And like, that, she was like, do you have any questions for me? And like, that was my interview. Um, So so I was like, okay, I guess I, I, I thought I wasted a whole degree, but it worked out. Um, so oh, Yeah, it was that. just, I was interested in terror and, and I focused on terrorism too, you know, in that region. So um, I just had a really good background um, when I went to apply. For a lot of people, especially, uh, I don't know if it's Generation Z or whatever it is, those that uh, were born in or around a time that 9-11, a post 9-11 world, let's just put it that way. The only uh, thing that they'll probably ever know as would be 9-11. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's taken a life of its own since then because of discontent with the government and this and that. It's like, oh, inside job, this and that, um, whatever it is, because of how disillusioned people have become, even those that have uh, supported the cause early on. Uh, I have a book uh, based on my um, my early version of my show where I dealt exclusively with political um, issues and, and commentary and economics and all that. And one of the big things that I covered was the, the, the global war on terror. So uh, looking at it from a lens from today to see all that in the back, I'm not judging myself uh, for anything and my positions back then because what I knew is that people just assume it was 
9 11. And it's like, dude, have you not looked back at centuries of terrorism? But they've lost sight as what you have been doing. Something is still very real to you and that affects you that the threats never went away. We can't get the Americans out of Afghanistan, but holy hell, just what, one week ago from this recording, uh, who, how many were caught at the border just crossing over after Title 42 expired? It's like uh, someone on the terrorist watches from Afghanistan. <sighs> 16 like, terrorists were caught this month alone at the border. And can you imagine those are the ones who came through like a legal checkpoint to be caught? Could you imagine now if you take the numbers of how many went illegally through that got in this month, if 16 were caught? I mean, it's pretty scary. The numbers. Yes. What are they just? Are they just here to to live off our welfare? <laughs> no. And, and that and that's just it. Like we use, I use that expression. I think you've also said it, but um, I think I was even heard in the movie Thirteen Hours. I say the enemy's still out there, and I repeat that because people's like, you guys don't know that how how dangerous it is to be American outside the United States, uh, especially in in regions where we're frowned upon. You know, and and, and I get it. I also understand uh, how some people are reacting because I shared the post when you're trying to build awareness to help get um, there was a particular uh, uh, um, Afghan ally. Um, uh, I think there was a uh, there was some ha- happy ending towards it. But yeah, um, his brother lived post. in Texas and then he came and got caught like he went to the border to claim asylum and they detained him. And when they were going to deport him back yes. to Afghanistan, yes, he luckily did yes. get released. Do- a lot of pressure, a lot of bipartisan Democrat and Republican lawmakers came together for him, and they luckily did get him released, and he's now um, safely in the United States. But yeah, he was going to be deported back to the Taliban who planned to kill him. Wow. And I shared that post in the not the big tech stuff, just trying to build awareness in other social media platforms. I received nothing but hate for the post. I'm like, so he's he's Afghan. It's like he probably did more for the brotherhood and sisterhood out there than maybe you have just running your mouth about your politics, you know. And and this goes to the covenant also because that's kind of what it was highlighting. And um, it it always stuck out to me. I, I didn't I didn't tell you that because I felt we were going to one day have a conversation about this. But that's also I, I can't entirely blame. Uh, some Americans for this ignorance when the first question I had, Dorian would have now knows the fall of Kabul uh, and then the airport being overrun. It's like, why are a bunch of military aged men are the ones running to get a hold on the, on the, of the airplanes instead of like women and children, you guys go first, we'll hold the line. And we didn't see that. And I, I, I get it. Like, I, look, I'm not, I'm not judging anybody for seeing that. Uh, but it's easier to sit on this side and judge it than actually being over there. Yeah, so that's you know. What I have to... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, trying to get women to the airport, which was almost impossible unless you drug them through a sewer pit, right? Um, the problem is the Taliban knew how to use the women and children against the men. So they would execute the wives right in front of their husbands. They would kill the babies and the children right in front of the husbands. So like the one of the Afghans that I said, I'm not telling, you know, who they're aligned to right now, he he went there and he didn't even bring his family. He said it, it was way too dangerous to even bring them near the gates. Like I would not risk the lives of my wife and my children. 
Um, and that was the problem. The gates were that dangerous. I don't know if you've ever seen Send Me, um, but it gives, it's a small, um, a short documentary, but it gives a really good understanding from Americans who were there at the gates about how horrible it was and how people were being murdered by the Taliban. See, and, and this is why I wanted to speak to you about it, because this is the context that people don't get. It's only what they see like on a picture or a video and they just start building narratives all around it. You know, uh, and I'm sure even people very close to you don't even get don't grasp the full truth of things. Like I I wanted to reach out to Tig. He started following me on Instagram. Thank you, Tig. Um, he started, and I, I bought some I had bought some of his uh, his shirts that they use his logo on at uh, I think it's I forget the name of the apparel company, but I was reading their supposed summary of Benghazi. And I'm like, wait, Tig, do you know that they're lying about this? <laughs> they're saying a bunch of stuff that's not true about Christopher Stevens being brutally tortured and killed, being dragged into the streets. I'm like, what the heck? Wait, how did you guys get this so wrong? And it's actually stunned me how much um, misinformation there there is uh, still out there, even on the supposed right side of things. I'm like, ah, man, that's what my brother told me. It's like maybe it's your mission to set the record straight because this has been kind of like a personal thing for you since as it happened. You know, it's like, well, maybe, I don't know. But um, you providing more context. See, that's why I said it's easier to sit on this side and judge a situation like that. And then you providing that context changes the entire narrative. That's why those guys were fleeing for their families to have a chance. You know, it's it's the opposite of what they uh, what everybody was assuming. Context that's needed, that's necessary, and our allies that are still out there, you know, in hiding and, and living under all this fear, they can never have a normal life. Maybe hope has been sniffed out, uh, like they have nothing else to live for, but they're still trying to make day to day, you know. Uh, but thank God for people like you, Sarah, that are, are that are still fighting for them, um, and not just seeking justice for for our fallen brothers, but also for uh, at the interest of those that have a covenant was made with uh, in essence quite literally a blood covenant um sorry that, it, these were unplanned remarks or unplanned stories just caught in the moment just me expressing myself so um just want to put that out there I take a sip of water now <laughs> no um our benghazi terrorists are, are pretty much the extreme of the extreme and um any kind of individual who tried to go back against them for like a security apparatus they went and killed all the men in their family so i know some male libyans who have no men left in their entire families to include young boys because the terrorists just went in and killed every one of them and like you said left them alive so so it's pretty tragic um and and part of that is right because we never went took them out we never went and gave them justice and that actually made them more powerful and in the process makes us look incompetent and weak. We can never uh, be looked upon as uh, as a global superpower anytime soon after all the damage that has been done. Um, when it just look in, in the short history of the past 12 years, not to entirely get into it, but it's just an example of what happens when you show weakness. Russia did nothing for four years under Trump. But before that was Crimea under Obama. So we're going to redline. We're going to redline. And in Syria, too. It's like, well, they crossed it a long time ago. You did nothing. It's like, oh, you know, it's something. Um, let Benghazi happen. Then after Trump, like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to take Ukraine now. It's like, this is what happens when you show weakness. 
And something that's a very big deal to me is that because I'm married to Taiwanese, my family's in Taiwan. I'm like, the threat has been over there, especially with semiconductors and telecommunication systems that come from over there. And China's like, oh, you know, we should just take it already. And my family out in Taiwan, they, they, they don't, they don't, they, they're like, oh yeah, China always talks, always talks. Yeah, but this time there's no one coming to the rescue if anything happens. That, oh, but they're moving some flotilla from Japan over to, to Taiwan. <sighs> We're not going to do anything. I, I told them, you guys don't understand just how grave a threat it is now compared to what it was, say, three years ago. So with all this ineptitude and what uh, the CIA, well, the CIA, well, maybe the CIA, uh, but the FBI ha has been a very incompetent, to say the least. And to what extent were they or were they not involved in uh, in January 6th or whatever? With all this that's gone on and that's why it's dealt and all this distrust, I, I can't see them being being repaired. I wanted to ask you how this all makes you feel, whether you agree with, or with some of the stuff or whatever. But the point is, how, how does this make you feel knowing that you've given your your life, maybe about half of it at least, to to the CIA, and and what's what's become of these institutions? Um, yeah, I mean, it. You know, they've allowed politics to help influence the decisions they make. I mean, Benghazi is an excellent example, right? I mean, the FBI never went against our terrorists to help promote a political narrative. Um, I'm worried it's not going to get better. You know, the great FBI guys have either retired or they're leaving in, in, in droves, right? It, but you don't want that to happen. You want the good people to stay inside and to fix the yeah. problem. But they're kind of like, hey, it's almost getting beyond our control. Like, we don't want any part of this. And that's the concern with the FBI. I think it's going down so quick. Um, it's now going to just be known as this political targeting organization because uh, like the, there just doesn't seem to be anyone stepping up internally in the FBI trying to fix it. And that's what needs to be done. Right. A congressperson or a committee isn't going to tell them how to fix itself. Nobody's going to disband the FBI. Right. So so we're stuck with this problem that needs to be fixed internally. And if you don't have the people inside who are willing to put their necks out and, and do it. Um, it, it's, I just don't see it getting better, unfortunately, and it's really frustrating because I know some amazing FBI officers and, and they don't deserve to be put in this situation, but they're in it and, and they need to step up and do something about it. I mean, that, that's, you know, that's part of ethics, right? Like yeah. you should want to do the best job you can do and do the best by the American people. And they're not doing that right now. Yeah. They're supposed to, they're supposed to work for us, um, and, and our interests, but, uh, the, with the most recent John uh, Durham report, I already knew all this, but at least it's out there now for everybody else to see. Um, to uh, some of the the shootings that have happened, including all the way up to the Buffalo shooter uh, just this year, it's like you guys had eyes on these people. You did nothing because it's just it's been a politicized wing. I believe you. There are individuals that uh, that have their country at heart. That, that have the that uphold the oath of their service. Um, we don't hear from them because negative news is what makes you know the, the the news cycles get the ratings. That's all we ever hear is the negative stuff. We don't hear from the Sarah Adams of the world about the, the good that the CIA has done. Instead, let's talk about their involvement in, in the JFK assassination. Let's talk about how Building 7 fell and it wasn't hit during 9-11. Uh, See, it was an inside job to get us all involved in a global war on terror so the globalists at least can be all be involved. We can't have dialogue anymore because we've all become divided on like, all these ideologies. It's, it's, it's annoying. 
Um, and if we, if and, and if anything, I say that's what the enemy wanted us to do because the house divided cannot stand. It's so we're gonna stand on all these opposed oppositions of, of ideologies. I I can't see uh, the United States that I remember, but maybe maybe even five years ago. Still, for my kids as they grow up, everything uh, everything has to be politics now. Um, and that's why nothing is being resolved. And one problem, I, though, I uh, just want to explain that one problem in the government is, remember, it, it's a system, right? You work all these years, you get a pension, right? So when even like the greats, right? If they're a few years before their pension, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I'm so near the end. Other people are like, hey, I put all the years into this government job where I didn't get paid much. So when I get out, I get a great job, right? So I'm not going to rock the boat. It's going to affect those political influences to give me some big deal when I get out. And then the third piece is whistleblowers have become such a negative thing, right? No one mm. wants to be a whistleblower. Even I did an I like an IG complaint when I was in the CIA and like some girl wrote me, oh, you're a whistleblower like me. I'm like, oh, I'm not a whistleblower, right? Because <laughs> it, it, it just kills your career. It's done. Even and the conspiracy theorists come after you no matter what side you're on. So, yeah. so the system do, isn't built to have people step up and do the right thing. Yeah, they have an IG, they have ombudsman, they have offices you can go to, but there's not really proponents to fix these things. And again, if, if you're only a few years from retirement, a lot of people are like, it ain't worth it. I'm going to be out of this shit show soon. You know, sayonara. Um, and so we don't have the system to, to fix these problems. Yeah, and I really don't want to end this on a downer. <laughs> but, uh, but it it does it does feel um it does feel pretty much that's like dude what what happens now well you're not in the CIA anymore you're still doing a good work it's like yeah the institutions may have failed but that doesn't mean you have to fail too and if anything you never stop fighting the good fight and I think that's what's most admirable and which is why I. Um, I, I said, because uh, it was during Veterans Day, where I told you, it's like, look, I never thought I'd, I'd be telling a, a CIA operative this, but thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it is true. Um, it's it's a it's part of a, a, I guess, the shadowy organization. But I guess to to borrow a phrase from um, Mark Osgeist, is the shadow warrior, um, and you're in a in a sense a part of that. Uh, that brotherhood and sisterhood, those that don't get the recognition because it's it's the big wigs that um, are the ones getting all the press and 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 put on the face of the CIA, whether it's a good one or a bad one, and you're all judged for it. Meanwhile, no one talks about your achievements. Just like what we mentioned, the Maya character from Zero Dark Thirty. It's like, yeah, I see from a Hollywood lens. You know, I could see for entertainment. But then you give in the context changes that it changes the entire movie for me. Literally, it's like, no, th this girl was even more than that. No, that that's awesome because then it gives weight to the whole discussion and the scene where the SEAL team is about to go, uh, you know, do the do the night raid on on the compound where they're like, uh, hey, no offense, but what makes you so sure about this? And then the other character says. Her confidence. <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah, it's a Hollywood moment. Not anymore. Because what you said says everything to me. It's like, look at her track record. Her track record is the confidence. So, yeah, that does change a lot for me. And I think that's, uh, um, 
that's still a high note that we could still leave it on, even though it's a for the most <laughs> part. It, it it is a downer of a obsession, but it needs to be dis- it needs to be talked about, it needs to be discussed, uh, and not forgotten. Um, and that's that's why I talk about it so often. People are like, what, what is the whole thing about Benghazi? Like, Let me tell you about Benghazi. <laughs> um, and uh, this and that happens. But uh, Sarah, if there's something you you're able to plug in, we didn't plan this part, but there's something uh, to plug in because you said to help with your investigation. How can people help with your investigation and you know, with Benghazi and all that? Well, I mean, the main thing is to you know buy the book, purchase the book. The book's only being used to fund the investigation. Like I said, luckily because people have bought the book, we now found two more attackers. Um, we now wow. are going to hopefully start in the mortar team. We need to sell probably like six or seven hundred more books to actually get that going. But like I said, the funds have found more terrorists, and the interesting part is the two terrorists we're going to release. One travels freely um, to Britain. And he might even be a resident there. The other one lives in Turkey, but he can travel anywhere in Europe, meaning he at least has a Schengen. Um, so a lot of Americans, like, they think, hey, these war zones are so far away. They forget, no, these terrorists are next to you when you're in Paris. And they might want to attack mm. you because you're an American, right? Like, like, they're not as far away as people think they are. Um, and when nobody's watching them, they're even more of a threat. Yeah. Oh, well, I feel... Good that uh, I bought two books uh, because <laughs> Amazon took forever. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. uh, you, you, you lost your patience. <laughs> yes, I want to read the book already, man. <laughs> um, but uh, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and I think a bunch of other independent real- retailers mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll be leaving links to as many of them as possible in the show notes. A couple of this episode at www.jusicover.com. Um, and I'll also be leaving your social links. So uh, Instagram, preferably, for people to yeah, follow that's, your stuff. That's the main one we put stuff on. Yeah, Sky Media Group. Okay. And that's great. what we'll release well, the two new terrorists. Um, hopefully in the next week. I just have to find some free time to do it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, seriously, uh, God bless you. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah. Um, for anybody else, check out her stuff. As always, the stuff will be available. All her social links and including the book will be on the uh, show notes a couple of episodes at www.theusagova.com. Always a pleasure, Sarah, to be on the program. And I'd love to have you on again, um, you know, even if it's just to banter and talk about movies and TV <laughs> or whatever. Sounds good.